Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. This episode is sponsored by Solveto. Continuous learning is the driver for success, growth, and well-being. Learn or expire. Keep your Azure skills up to date. Act now by going to solveto.fi slash pro. I'm Tobias. I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. I've spent a bit of time lately building my own FlightRadar 24 ADS-B receiver on a leftover Raspberry Pi. So ADS-B, that stands for Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast. And I needed to look that up on Wikipedia. And it's, it's used by aircraft to determine their position in the sky by using often satellite navigation. So the idea that I have is to build my own instance of this to track aircraft close to where I live, and then feed that data back to FlightRadar to, to help out the community make the, the results better. So it's, it's fun because you need a specific type of an antenna, you need the cabling, you need a bit of assembly to make it work. And also it's educating because now I do know that one nautical mile is about 1.85 kilometers or about 1.1 miles. Yeah, I think I recently had a dialogue with someone and I think we spoke about that as well. Like what am I going to do with my Raspberry Pis I'm not using. I use it for a pie hole for you know, blocking some unwanted ads and stuff like that and optimize the network. This is definitely another another option, interesting project. On my side, also something around tech in a way, but more so about my wallet. So the electrical prices in my region of Sweden is ridiculous right now as a result of factors in the world. So we used to pay about 0.05 euros per kilowatt hour but now we're paying 0.75 to 1 euro. That is a, a price increase of between 1,500% to 2,000%. And, and this is from a year and a half ago. So it's it's quite, um, quite a steep increase uh, in the price uh, due to everything going on in the world and, and what happens with energy. And we don't have any reactors or anything like that anymore in, in Sweden. We are highly dependent on uh, neighboring countries to, to pro provide as well. Uh, so now I'm looking for options for solar energy and kind of optimizing uh, any heating equipment and, and the usage of what we already have. So I've plugged in measurements and devices, kind of IoT devices for uh, for the water, for the dishwasher, for the tumble dryer, um, you know, all the different things that we have in the household, fridge, freezer, just a super small device that sits between the outlet and the actual device. And then it measures the... Um, the usage in kilowatt hours, and then it can send it back to kind of the main hub or, or the main device. And then I can measure all the electricity and also figure out from where are we spending that electricity. And, and that's pretty eye-opening because then we can really optimize what we do in the household. Uh, because it's it's very common now in Sweden that everyone needs to really, especially in the south of Sweden where I am, everyone needs to optimize everything they do at home, turn off all the lights, uh, turn down the, the heat on the shower, on your heating pump, everything. Because people, unfortunately, no longer can afford to pay their bills because now it's not not uncommon to get an energy bill only for electricity between 700 and 2,000 euros per month. And this is where it's usually during the summer months, like we just went through now. This is usually around 25 to 45 euros. So it's a pretty big discrepancy going to a few hundred euros. 
or during winter, what we expect more like 2000 euros for a single month of consumption. So it's, it's pretty expensive. So we're looking now into different ways to optimize this. And I guess it's a, you know, just a, the kind of the, the final nail in the coffin of really making the move to more renewable energy and, and really optimizing for a more sustainable uh, future per household as well, not just a political game, but per household. So um, big things happening, a lot of uncertainty. Hopefully this will level out um, you know, in, in the coming months, but by the looks of it right now, um, solar energy and any type of renewable energy that you can get your hands on is probably a good investment in the long term. Now that you mentioned the energy prices, and I, I feel the same here in Finland as well, I'm rethinking my Flight Radar 24 receiver. Perhaps I want to save on that energy as well. <laughs> so this week we are taking a look at Ampere Ultra Arm based virtual machines. So today's topic is something that I can confidently say we know very, very little about. <laughs> but I, I, I feel it's fun to talk about something that we are sort of learning on the way. So I, I've spent a bit of time on this. I've been following up on this, but I can't say that I'm a super expert on this. And perhaps when we do the episode now, uh, while reading the notes, perhaps we, we learn on the go as well. So this is a capability which is generally available now. So that's perhaps the reason also why we are doing the episode, but also because this is something new and interesting. So, so Toby, have you ever been exposed to, to ARM previously? Yes, I have. But for me, that is Azure Resource Manager. And by my understanding of what you just introduced in this show, that's not what we're talking about. So I also don't have a lot of experience with, with what we're talking about today, the Ampere uh, Altara ARM-based virtual machines. Uh, but I'm very excited to, to take a look at that. So I guess that's not kind of the ARM definition. When we say ARM today, we don't mention Azure Resource Manager as the main point, but something else. What, what is ARM in this context? You're exactly right. So ARM is in today's context, ARM with uh, an uppercase A, lowercase R and M. Uh, it stands for Advanced Risk Machines. And I, I think back in the day, it was a cord risk machine or a corn risk machine. So it's it's a different processor architecture, but there's also a company called ARM, which oversees and develops that architecture. And and typically when I've been seeing ARM mentioned in, 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 in recent years, it's typically associated with lower cost uh, of, of, of producing those uh, CPU chips, minimal power consumption, so mobile devices, tablets, laptops, whatnot, and also lower heat generation. So that sort of circles us back to the kilowatt hours and the prices in there. ARM is the technology and the physical chip architecture. So we're not talking about Intel and AMD and x86 and all of the usual things you do on workstations and servers, typically in the cloud or in, in, in on-premises. So, so that's the thing. But then we have something called Ampere, and I'm not fully sure, how do you pronounce this correctly? Is it Ampere or Ampere or something else? How would you say this? 
I mean, it, it sounds French, right? I, if I if I don't if I recall correctly, and and don't correct me on this, uh, it's it's a of French origin from a guy called Ampere who discovered the uh, the thing with the with the current and you know voltages and whatever. So I, I would say Ampere, but in this context, I don't know. <laughs> I just made that up. I I take you as an authority on this one. So so Ampere Computing is a separate company and and their vision and mission what i could gather from the website is 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 really to build the alternative processor architecture that sort of competes with intel and amd but this is based on the arm architecture so this is a bit of a background on this one so today we are talking about the ampere companies ultra platform which is ARM-based, and this is for <laughs> virtual machines. That's that's key here. So the announcement that was just recently made was that you can now utilize the Ampere Ultra ARM processors for spinning up certain type of virtual machines in Azure. Am I clear on this? Are, are you so? Be, are, are are you sort of buying the thought that I'm selling you here? Okay, so I'm starting to see the point here that um, the new thing we're talking about here, it's a specific type of VMs coming out or a specific type of tier or, or VM size or selection that comes with the Ampere, Altera or Ultra ARM processor uh, on those VMs. And yeah, the things you, you just mentioned, lowered cost, minimal power consumption, lower heat generation, all of these things tie into sustainability as well. And uh, so I, I I do see the benefit here of like driving sustainability in your organization, becoming more climate aware. Maybe this is an option to look at um, if if the tiers of these different VMs and, and the VM sizes can support the the model of our workloads. Um, so I'm I'm starting to see the point, uh, but I I think we just opened the box, so there's probably a lot to digest here. I I think I need to look up the Ampere computing phone number, just call them up to hear how they pick up the phone and pronounce the company name. But let's go with Ampere for now. So typically when you spin up a VM in Azure, a Linux or a Windows box, typically you get an Intel Xeon type of CPU, which is the server grade CPUs, or an AMD Epic, which is AMD's uh, response on, on that one. And you don't really see the difference in regular use. So if you spin up a VM, deploy Windows Server 2022, you install something like a SQL Server on the VM. You don't really care if it's Intel or AMD or, or what sort of specific type the CPU is. As long as it's x86, so you know you can run your code, you can do the regular stuff, right? So the new VM SKUs, the capabilities that are now announced and they are generally available. Uh, there's three different SKUs. The first one is DPSv5 series. The second one is DPLSv5. And the last one is EPSv5. The first one, DPSv5, is uh, up to 64 cores and up to 4 gigs of RAM per CPU up to 208 gigs on a single instance. The second one, the DPL SV5, 64 vCPUs, but up to two gigs per CPU, so 128 gigs. The last one, 
is is the uh, 32 CPUs, but eight gigs of RAM per CPU, so up to 208, eight gigs of RAM. Mm, and, and and the focus for this is not to spin this up and try to install Windows Server 2022 because it doesn't work there, and then try to install SQL Server. There's no point in this. The focus for these new ARM-based CPUs for the VMs is to run Azure Kubernetes service workloads. So containerized workloads, serverless stuff, because these are most efficient at small tasks, not the big ones. So so this is, so if, if I understand this correctly, you would use one of these VMs as like the node size for your AKS cluster when you say, hey, let's let's add another 10 nodes. And then when you decide what size those nodes are and what size your cluster has, this uh, Ampere, Ultra ARM-based virtual machines uh, would be a good fit for for that if if the sizes and you know, all the all the kind of specs uh, matches is is that a fair assumption? It is, it is for sure. And and there's nothing stopping you from spinning up one of these without Kubernetes at all, and perhaps deploying Linux and and running your Docker-based containers on top of that. That's that's fine as well. I'm not sure if you're getting any cost savings, but you are generating less heat in the data center and you're using less power. And well, the cost is, is roughly the same as a regular x86 VM. Uh, but performance, and this is a claim from, from Microsoft as well, is that when you go with the Ampere uh, CPUs, uh, you will outperform Intel-based CPUs by 39% and AMD-based CPUs by 47% on oh. a specific test, obviously. Right. So I'd, it would be interesting to understand, maybe maybe that's available in, in some of the docs, if we, if we drill down, to understand like where is this performance measured? Is it when it's running in an AKS cluster, as previously mentioned, or is it like in general, you just open the machine and you, and you run a benchmark tool or like how that performance is is measured because at at 39% at minimum 39% better performance for for Intel and uh, 47 for AMD that's that's pretty high numbers uh, so if if you can gain that performance just by switching tiers it would be really interesting to understand obviously what the cost is because that is always the bottleneck in in any dialogue or a trade off Someone says you're going to get almost 50% increased performance. It's going to cost you 200% though, <laughs> right? And then, then it's kind of a, a, a dumb deal for, for a lot of folks. So I think that's where we need to figure things out. And, and maybe when you're listening into this, take a look at that. If you can find it, tweet um, to uh, me and you'll see, see if you, if you have more insights on that, we'd love to know. Um, and if nothing else, I'm now really keen on setting up a few of these VMs and running performance benchmarks on them. Exactly, and and I did not do a deep dive on the specific benchmarks, but they're often synthetic, meaning that they run a simulated workflow on something. And obviously, whoever is performing that benchmark ideally wants to look at whatever chart or graph that gives you 39% outperforming Intel Instead of, well, we're 20% slower on something else, let's not talk about that. Uh, the CPU, the, the physical CPU is an 80-core Ampere Ultra CPU. 
but Ampere also has a 128 core Ultra Max, but I think it's not being used yet. So, so you get the 80 core. So if you spin up, let's say the uh, the DPSV5 based VM, and and you crank it up to the max, you get 64 CPUs and 208 gigs of RAM. So obviously, that's not optimal for anything beyond something something large you would need to utilize. But for smaller nodes, between two to eight gigs per node, that would be ideal. I, I so, don't think you need this for your flight radar thing, right? No, I hope not. <laughs> I, I hope not because I'm I'm hoping the Raspberry Pi 3B Plus, which is the super old one, I still have un, underutilized that I can use that for that. Um, the the availability for this it's it's a little bit specific. So in the U.S., there's a couple of regions: West U.S. two, West Central, Central U.S., East U.S., and East U.S. two. Uh, in Europe, West and North Europe available, Sweden Central, no, or Norway or, or anything else. And in Asia, it's just East and Southeast Asia, Australia as well. Uh, and the uh, the regional availability should expand right about now. So I saw a notion that early September 2022, it will be expanded, but I did try this just now. And for West and North Europe, it's available, but not in Sweden Central or the other usual European locations you would utilize. A couple of notable capabilities, uh, 40 gigs of networking bandwidth and the usual standard SSD, HDD, premium SSD supported. And and that's that's really it. So, so once you deploy this, it's a regular VM. There's nothing fancy about this, but you're using an ARM 64 base architecture and not the x86 based architecture that you'll probably be using for 30 years now. Did I did I sell you on the idea on this one, Toby? After we're done with the recording, are you spinning up one? Um, I'm I'm not spinning spinning up one for the sake of having one. Uh, but if if I do get the purpose, I will definitely evaluate this because one of the things I work a lot with is also sustainability. And just like I mentioned a lot when when we're catching up here in the show, is I I really fight for the climate. I really want to minimize travel. I really want to minimize all my own emissions in my own household and do what I can and and you know to to contribute to the uh, success of the future generations. And I see all of these things coming out of Microsoft where you kind of drive the green IT and, and like the green software principles and like fighting for a better uh, sustainable workload is something that I really enjoy. So I, I think when I come to the point where I need to evaluate uh, a tier size for a, a new VM, then this definitely comes into play. But looping back to my previous kind of comment there, it depends on the pricing, right? If If the price is about the same, then yeah, if I get more than 39% performance boost, I'm not sure if there's anything to think about. Because if you lower the heat, you lower the power consumption, and you increase the performance, ultimately reducing emissions, but increasing the workload efficiency, I don't see a reason for not doing it, unless there are some some really important caveat that, that we don't understand at this point. But just hearing it now, it, it sounds like it has the need for for a lot of the workloads I've built in the past. Um, so, so I really like this 
like the promise of a greener kind of setup and greener infrastructure just by making the choice of your of your processor. So uh, so that's cool. Um, I'm I'm definitely trying it out or taking a look at it when when we come to the point that I need to deploy something again here. So so the pricing point is interesting. I did have a look on the Azure pricing calculator. If you spin up a regular burstable uh, VM, so B2MS as an example, uh, with two CPUs, eight gigs of RAM, running that for 24/7 for a month, that's about seventy dollars with with the default workloads and settings. Uh, if you switch that to the DPSV5, uh, the the ARM based based one with two CPUs and eight gigs of RAM, uh, that comes up to around sixty nine dollars a month. So so roughly it's the same. But beyond just pricing, I I feel there's the there's the implication of a possible added cost of switching to this one, because keep in mind you cannot run x86 code on this one. So the operating system has to be an ARM-based one, but all the workloads you run, perhaps a container or your custom .NET code or something else, it has to be recompiled and rebuilt for the ARM architecture. And perhaps for containers, this is more or less trivial in the sense, but often if you then need to recompile and, and sort of go through your code, to make it natively supported on ARM architecture, then obviously you need to have the tools and the pipelines and everything reconfigured. So I wouldn't just change something for the sake of changing it, but perhaps making a more long-term approach to this one. If this is sort of the future platform you want to invest in, then by all means start building for this, but you cannot do this overnight unless you run a single container and you can just flip the switch. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice. And and maybe this is the caveat that I was looking for. Like there, there's got to be a, a catch when you get for more than 40% better performance, but you get the same price. And there, there's probably a catch somewhere. And, and this might be it. And this is not impossible. It's trivial in some cases. It's, it's like rocket science in other cases. In previous roles I had, we deliberately made a choice many years ago to build cross-platform products, even if we deployed it on a specific platform, in, in our case, in Azure Functions and containers, uh, we still wanted them to be able to run on Windows machines, on Linux machines, on Mac, on whatever, uh, for you know various reasons, but also to be well-suited and well-prepared. And with the introduction of .NET Core at the time, which is now .NET, um, the latest version of .NET, you have this kind of cross-platform capability. And so that's something that, that we made a deliberate choice way back when. And I think a lot of companies may have done that when they started something new. For existing legacy projects and things that been, you know, has, has been running for a long time, this might not be super ideal, uh, not for the sake of just switching tiers. So yeah, back to the planning board, take a look, what's the requirements here? Uh, what type of CPUs can we run on? Okay, your architecture need to be running on ARM64. All right, so in order to do that, we need to re-architect, like you said, the pipeline, the, the actual code. Maybe we need different uh, Docker images that support this architecture. And there might be quite a lot of changes that are simply not worth it for the sake of moving to a different sized or, or a different tier VM uh, on, under a different SKU. But something to be aware of. And I, I really like that you highlighted that. 
So that's if if I were in my previous role and and I was looking at this, that's where I would start. You know, what what are the cost savings, if any? What are the performance increases? Because essentially that means cost savings, right? If you can achieve 40% more performance using this, that means you can actually reduce the amount of virtual machines you have deployed, um, and and then ultimately save cost and and also save on the on the climate, of course. Um, but if it requires such effort that it's almost impossible to estimate like that the resources required and, and all the changes you need to do in your project, then start with an MVP or, or make some kind of evaluation or just go back to the drawing board and say, okay, here's the requirements for using these VMs. This is what we have today. How do we move the needle, if at all? Because again, there's a trade-off. In all the decisions we do in IT, there's a trade-off. Uh, cost, performance, security, all of these things, time, uh, complexity of your project, there's always going to be something to think about. So I, I, I really love this idea of, of deploying these machines. So thinking about new workloads, this is something that I will now keep in mind. Doesn't necessarily mean I will end up there. It, again, comes down to what is it that you're trying to deploy? Are you just deploying a, a default image of, of a web app or Nginx or something like this, like a load balancer, and that supports it? Okay, cool, great, then you can do it. If I have to re-architect everything that I have and, and rebuild it and then run through full QA uh, scenarios, integration testing, like all all these things for like a big project, then we're talking quite a heavy investment, both in, in time and budget. Yeah, definitely it's something to think about. There's no clean answer here. There's only, it depends and make notes of the requirements you have and and the kind of, usually what we, what we call like your current state and your desired state. So the current state is what you have in the desired state that would be maybe ending up on this platform. But in order to do that, we need to understand the differences. And if you still have Visual Basic 6 based code, perhaps don't start migrating that on, on, on any of the ARM based ones. The supported operating systems as of today, Ubuntu Linux, Red Hat, SUSE, I think we debated if it's SUSE or SUSE, uh, Debian, Alma Linux and Flatcar Container Linux. So when you spin up a new VM, you just go to Azure Portal, click on creating a new VM, select one of these. And once you've selected one of these, you then select the architecture, which is ARM64 or x86. So you go for ARM64, and then you have to go back to selecting the VM image because there's a small drop-down menu where you have to select ARM64 on this specific type of a Linux distribution. But what you can also do is you can spin up a Windows 11 Pro or Enterprise using ARM64. It's an insider build, but it's available in Azure Portal. So I did just this yesterday. I spun it up on, I think, again, the DPSv5 series. I put it eight gigs of RAM, two CPUs, Windows 11 Pro, Let's just see how it performs. It reboots, you log in. It's slightly slower than you would perhaps expect Windows 11 to be on an x86 based one. And when you open Task Manager on the CPU, it simply states Ampere Ultra Processor at three gigahertz. So it's perfectly usable and the usual stuff works because Windows 11 has been compiled for ARM64. But if you then go and download Notepad++, yeah, it's not going to run unless you have the ARM64 compiled binary. 
So I, I, I feel this is sort of the the essence of of what this capability is about. Uh, last bits on availability. I did try to spin this up on a sponsored Azure subscription, but it says you don't have quota for ARM64. I tried requesting quota. There's an automated process. It takes a minute and it's declined every time. But if you go to a regular pay-as-you-go subscription where you perhaps have a credit card or something, then you have a default default quota of 20 CPU cores for ARM64. So if you want to try this out, make sure you have a real subscription and perhaps not a sponsored or an Azure Pass or an MVP subscription or something that you essentially got for free. Alrighty. I think this was all we had for this one. The last bit, the unexpected question. And Toby, I think it's this time it's my turn to ask you, are you ready? Let's go. What's the best cereal? <laughs> okay, that's a short question. Uh, also an easy answer. Spicy granola with coconut oil and a dash of honey. And you obviously eat this with quark. I think it's called quark in English, which is the, the English word for kvai, which is the Swedish word. Um, optionally, it could be like curd cheese or something like that, but I'm, I'm not exactly sure what that is because this is not actually cheese. This is a, a super healthy uh, type of, of diary, diary, diary that, that you can have. So yeah, spicy granola with coconut oil and a dash of honey that you eat with quark, final answer. Couple that's of pieces a, of fruit on top of that, obviously, but that, that's that's it. Okay, that's that's a decent answer. I need to try this out. I sort of gave up with cereal a couple of years ago, but I'm willing to give this a try with the coconut oil, definitely. All right, sounds good. Alrighty, thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next week as well. All right, see you then.